What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, as we just read, for your love for us. Help us see deeper and deeper the depths of your love today as we study your word together. May your spirit go forth. May the gospel be shared. And may eyes be opened to the good news of what you accomplished for us in Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So does anyone else, whether you're like searching for something online or talking to people, go on these long rabbit trails? Anyone? Just me? Long rabbit trails? When I was preparing for this sermon, I went on a pretty long rabbit trail the other day. As I was studying for Romans 8, I was working my way through all of the beginning of Romans. And there's this section we're going to talk about in a little bit that says that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So as I'm studying that, seeing what that means, um, I had a little rabbit trail to where I ended up on this website that talked about the richest heirs to fortune. Not the richest people in the world, the richest people who got their money just from being children or family of the person who earned that money. It's a very interesting list. Some of these names you may know, some you might not know, but I just want you to hear these names and see how much money that they earned just from being part of a family. So Ann Walton Cronkey, niece of Walmart founder Sam Walton, $6.87 billion. Killed Kirk Christensen, the son of the founder of Lego, $7.21 billion. Laureen Powell Jobs, the widow of Steve Jobs, Apple, um, $10.3 billion in her trust. Lucas Walton, grandson of Sam Walton, $24.8 billion. Abigail Johnson of Fidelity Investments, $34.4 billion. Alice Walton, daughter of Sam Walton. Notice there's a lot of Waltons in this. 
Alice Walton, who's his daughter, 68.3 billion. Rob Walton, the oldest son, 69.3 billion. And Jim Walton, the youngest son, 71.2 billion. Francois Betancourt Myers, daughter of founder of L'Oreal, 87.1 billion. And Makesh Ambani, Reliance Industries, that's based out of India, 94.6 billion dollars. All of these people did not work from the ground up to earn their money. They were heirs to this fortune because they were children of these people. And I love that because the whole thing that we're gonna be talking about today hinges on the idea that we are sons and daughters of God and fellow heirs with Christ to all the blessings of God. And what is that blessing, that ultimate blessing, that ultimate inheritance that we earn, that we have gotten for being sons and daughters of God, is God's everlasting love for us. I love the verse that Lily read earlier for us, Romans 5, verse 8, and it says this, just that first verse. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love that. It's in the present tense. It doesn't say, but God showed his love. It says God shows his love. Because Christ died for us, God will constantly show us his love. So today we're going to be looking at Paul. He In verses um, 1 through 8, or chapters 1 through 8 in Romans, it's this big gospel presentation that he is laying out. And this is the end of the whole conversation, of the whole presentation. And he asks four questions about God's love. So in verse 31, he starts by saying this. What then shall we say to these things? So that tells us, when you see that in Scripture, what are these things? Quick overview of how we got to this point that we're going to be studying in Romans. Very quick overview of the first seven chapters, eight chapters. We see this. Romans 1, 29 through 2, verse 1, tells us our position as sinners before Christ. This is really hard, but this is the truth of God's Word. It says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. See yourself in this yet? Because I do. Just seeing if we're on track. Romans 3, verse 10. Paul makes it clear. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. So in Romans 1, everything that was described, he's describing all of us. We're all in the same camp. We're all in the same boat. Romans 3, verse 20. He's wrestling with this. and He says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin makes it clear he's working through this we are all sinners and because of that like we can't work to earn God's justification there's nothing we can do but then we get to this turning point in scripture Romans 3 21 through 24 but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Because of that good news, Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8, which we read earlier, But God shows his love for us that, when, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he sees where we were at as sinners. We see the good news of what Christ accomplished for us. But Paul, still in Romans 7, verses 18 and then in 24, he's still struggling with this idea that, that he is still a sinner. And it says this, for I, this is Paul speaking, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, uh, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then he comes to this conclusion. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he makes it bigger. It's not only we're made right before God, but it goes deeper. Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So that was a very quick 30,000-foot overview of the presentation that he's giving. He starts out by showing where we were in our sin. He works his way to show us we couldn't do anything to get out of it, but God loved us that he sent Christ to die for us. Because of Christ, we now have peace with God, but he's still wrestling with us. And then finally, there is no condemnation. If we're in Christ, we're made right before God and in Christ. We are sons of God and fellow heirs with him. What good news. And then he gets to this final point. All that stuff I just read, he asked the question, what then shall we say to these things? Everything we just said, what shall we say to these things? So Paul plants his flag on the hill of these four questions that we're going to look at today. Question number one. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is not asking who's against us. We already know there are a lot of things against us. The world is against us. Satan's against us. There's a lot against us. No, he's making a point. If God is for us, and in joyful defiance, he's saying who can be against us? Who can stand up to us? Because God is for us. God is not neutral towards you. You ever think about that? He is not standing there neutral towards you. He's not waiting to see how you're going to turn out. He's not standing up there saying, listen, I, I knew you were going to be a headache, but you've gone too far this time. I, I, can't, I can't deal with you anymore. No. God knows you completely everything about you, your innermost thoughts, and he is still for you through Christ. So when we, when we think about this, when we think about our sin and, and everything we keep wrestling with, we're tempted to think two ways. 
we either hide from it, we, we try to hide from God, we put on a nice face for all our friends at church. How are you doing today? Good. How many times do you hear that each week? Doing good. We try to put on this face to hide just all of our struggle. We try to hide from God or we just accept defeat. I'm a broken sinner. Surely God does not love me. But that is not true. We, we, you may feel like you don't deserve God's love because we don't. But that's not a reason for him to stop loving us. Even more than that, it's a reason for him to love us all the more. God loves, God chose to love the undeserving. And that is us. Just because of all this, he did not stop loving us. Just because we feel that way, just because we don't deserve it, he still loves us. So God is completely for you. I want you to rest in that today. God is for you. And I want you to think about it this way. If God is for anyone, who, who would you say that would be? Christ, his son, Jesus Christ. There's an interesting thing, an interesting study that you should try sometime. If you go through the book of Romans, underline or circle every time it says in Christ or with Christ or for Christ. It says it a lot. You'll be underlining a lot because this is called the doctrine of our union with Christ. Because we are saved by Christ, because we have um, repented of our sins and believed in him and followed him, if you're in Christ, you are so closely united with Christ that Christ identifies with us. In Acts, when Paul or Saul is going to persecute Christians, you know the story of how, God, how Jesus shows up, blinds him, and what does Jesus say? Does he say, why are you persecuting my people? No. He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies so closely with us. We are so united with Christ that when we're persecuted, Christ says, why are you persecuting me? That is the union. We are so united with Christ that he identifies with us. We were covered in his righteousness. And when God looks at you and me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Now he, he doesn't look at you and see what a terrible sinner. He looks at you and he says what he said about Christ. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. If God is for Christ and we are in Christ, you can be sure that the God of the universe, the God we spent months studying about his attributes, learning how great and awesome and mighty he is, that God is for us. What a thing to rejoice. So once again, in joyful defiance, ask yourself, if God is for us, who can be against us? Question number two. Question number two, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now he said, he who did not spare his own son. When did he not spare his own son? At the cross. So what happened at the cross? God in that moment abandoned Christ. Christ cried out in the garden. God did not answer. This is, this is my will. You will die. He, he did not spare him. Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's the point of that. God gave us his most precious gift, right? He gave us Christ. What else is there for him to stop giving us now? Right? He gave us his most precious gift. Is he gonna is he gonna start like nickel and diamond us now? Is he gonna start, you know, trying to um, say, well, hold on, I've, I've spent too much on you. You're not worth it anymore. No. He gave us his son, his most precious gift. How will he not also graciously give us all things? There is no limit for the love of God for you. The deal is not based on you messing up. The deal has already been settled between God the Father and Christ the Son. God is as committed to us as he is committed to his Son. It's not our performance, but God's performance. God sealed his love for you on the cross. I love this quote from my old pastor, and it still sticks in my head. He always said this, and, and it just came back to me while I was sermon prepping. He said, God is rich in his love for you, and he's a big spender. I love that. That just stuck with me. God is rich in his love for you, and he is a big spender. He has already given us his son, and he plans to give us everything. Now, don't hear me wrong. This is not scripture saying, oh, I'm going to get all the money I want, all the happiness I want. No, he's going to give us all things in Christ. We are going to be given and guaranteed eternal life in Christ. Guess what? We may go through death, but he's going to give us resurrected bodies. We're going to spend eternity with Christ forever. We're going to spend eternity with each other forever if you're in Christ. I hope you all like me now. So I'm going to see y'all for a long time. You're going to meet new people, and they're going to be like your best friend. Isn't that amazing? All the blessings that we get in Christ. God, who did not spare his own son, how will he not also give us all things in Christ? He gives us all his love, his everlasting love eternally. That is the God we serve. That is the God who loves us. Question three, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? I love this, this passage. He starts off by saying, calling us Christians his elect. Here, I know that's kind of a buzzword, but here's what I want you to see. God chose sinners. He didn't get the last pick. He got first dibs, and he chose us. Isn't that amazing? Has anyone ever been picked last in elementary school? Okay, I was. See, some of you athletes out there that never got picked, but I was. I'll admit it. I know you don't want to admit it, but I will. I was picked last. God didn't pick last. He didn't have the last pick and say, ah, I guess I'll go with Nathan. No, he had first dibs. He chose sinners like you and me to show the world that Jesus can save the worst of us. Praise the Lord for that. So who can bring a charge against God's elect? That's what he said here. Um, lost my place. There we go. Who, can, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So that's saying, who, can, who in the world can bring a charge against us? God's the one who justifies sinners, and there's nothing that can de-justify us. There's no Supreme Court above God that's going to overrule him. If God looks at you and says, you are made 
right before me, that is a done deal. And there's nothing that can ever change that. Do not fall back into the lie that you can somehow out the love of God. If you are in Christ, it is sure. No one can bring a charge against you. You are made right. You are justified. And then he goes on. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who is to condemn? No one can condemn us. It's already been settled in Romans 8, verse 1. What did it say? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are, here it is, in Christ. No condemnation. So how is that possible? In Psalm 33, excuse me, Psalm 34, verses 21 and 22, it says this. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This was a promise made probably over a thousand years, almost a thousand years before Paul would write these words. It's a promise God made that no one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. How is that possible? It was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Christ. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of the Father. He redeemed the life of his servant Christ, and since we are in Christ, he will redeem our life. So who can condemn us? So I'm going to step away right here. This is separate from the sermon. And I want to talk to you all for a minute. Quit believing that God doesn't love you or that you have to earn the love of God. There are a lot of people in our church that serve incredibly well, and I am thankful for our church. Are y'all thankful for our church and how well we serve? I'm so thankful for that. But I'm not naive to think that there are some people in here that may be serving for the wrong reasons, that maybe believe, you may be lying to yourself thinking, I'm doing this because I have to earn God's love. I want you to hear me today so that you can't earn God's love. Christ earned it for you. Quit trying to make yourself believe this, this lie that you have to somehow serve and serve and come to church every week just to serve God and earn his love. That is not true. Instead, come worship with the body of Christ and serve him out of joyful obedience because of what he has done for you. So that's my little TED talk over here. We're going back to the sermon. All right. So I just wanted to, to make that clear. No one can condemn us. Your own false thoughts, if you are truly in Christ, cannot condemn you. But if you have not repented from your sin and followed Christ, don't fall into the false assurance that somehow going to church every week is going to save you. No work you can do can save you. Only Christ can save you. Your sin cannot defeat the love of God. Your account has already been settled between him and Christ. Accept that truth. So once again, who is to condemn? The answer, no one. Because Christ was condemned for us, defeated sin and death, we are no longer condemned. Praise the Lord.
Question four. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I love how he goes through this list of of things. He's kind of inventorying our struggles in life. He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness? I was thinking about this this morning. That means um, like being exposed and and embarrassed to to people and, and just there's so much to all of these. Then he goes on to say, or danger? Anything dangerous that can separate us from the love of God? And then he ends by saying, or sword? Can being killed separate us from the love of God? Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This has always seemed like a weird placement in this passage. Like he goes into this, I'm like, what does that mean? Whenever you see in scripture, it says, as it is written, you should probably look up where that's written and see what it says. That's written in Psalm 44, verses 20 through 26. I want you to hear the heart of the author of this psalm. And he says this, and you're going to hear these words in a minute. Starting at verse 20 of Psalm 44. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would God not discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, God, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's the quote. And he says, awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our afflictions and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. You see the pain in this author's writing. I don't, I, I don't know what they were going through in this moment. I could probably do more research and find out. I don't know what they were going through in this moment, but they were going through some hardship where it feels like the Lord has forgotten them. Have you ever gone through any kind of hardship in your life? There are many hardships in this church today with different members, from sicknesses to death and everything in between. There are trials and there are hardships where sometimes it may feel like God has forgotten us. But the author of this psalm didn't say redeem us because we deserve it. He says redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. He's reminding God of his steadfast love towards us and the promise that he made. And spoiler alert, what happened? God did redeem us through Christ. So back to verse 36 in Romans 8, the reason he puts this quote is he's thinking about this passage. He says, as is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Then he remembered what Christ did to fulfill the cry of Psalm 44. And he says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. No matter what you go through in life, no matter what trials you go through, no matter what you experience, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You may feel like it in the moment, but don't believe your false feelings. They're true feelings, but it's a false belief on the feelings. Believe the truth of God's word, that God loves you and nothing in life can separate you you from the love of God. He goes on to say this. He answers his own question when he says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
He says in verse 38, For I am sure, I am convinced, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing in the future, nor powers, no earthly authorities, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Paul is convinced, and we should be too, because if God promises this, we can plant our flag in it just as Paul is here. John 6, verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father has given me will come to me, and all who come to me I will never cast out. I remember my youth pastor giving this uh, image of this verse, and it has stuck with me to this day. He said, If you are hanging off a cliff and Jesus is the one grabbing you, it's like this, there's nothing you can do to get rid of his grip because he's got you. He will never cast you out. If I was the one holding on to Jesus on that cliff, first minute, I'm weak. I'm weak. I'm sorry, I am. My finger strength is not good. I would have fallen. But Christ has you. He will never cast you out. He is too strong to let you go, and you're too weak to make him. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Praise the Lord for this truth. So, I've been preaching the gospel to you a lot today, but but I need the gospel too. I need you to preach the gospel to me, and I need you to stand on this truth with me. If we're going to be a church serving the Lord and sharing this good news with others, we need to all stand on this truth of God's word. John Bunyan wrote this responsive reading, and and I've I've done my best to kind of modernize it because I think it'd be pretty hard to read his original language as a church. But I'm going to read some statements, and your job is simply to say this. But Jesus says, I will never cast you out. Remember how we read about Paul in in Romans chapter 7, where he's wrestling with this, and he says, the things... I want to do, I don't do, but the things I don't want to do, I keep doing. Wretched man am I. Who will save me from this body of death? It's that internal struggle with with the flesh. It's that internal struggle, and we need to be reminded of God's love constantly. So I'm going to read some statements. This is the modernized version of John Bunyan, and I need you all to actually mean this. Don't say it all dry. But Jesus says, I will never cast you out. No, this is good news. I need you all to say it like you mean it. So, for example, I am an awful sinner. Thank you, that's good. I've been consistently sinning for almost 31 years. I've repeated the same sin so many times that my heart has grown hard to it. Every time I take a step forward, I feel like I take two steps back. I've sinned so much that it feels like I should just be serving Satan. Sometimes I sin even though I know it's wrong. I feel as if sometimes I take advantage of God's mercy and sin even more. Jesus 
After all this, I have nothing good to bring before God except my many failures. Thank you. So what you're telling me is that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Amen. Amen. Thank you for preaching the gospel to me. That's what we need to share with everyone. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Paul plants his flag in this. We need to as well. I want to end today by reading this quote by uh, Pastor Ray Ortland, who when he, is, he was preaching through this and he got to this talking about how nothing can separate us, he says these words, and this is how we're going to end today. He says this, If we hand our mess over to Christ our Savior, will he ever, could he ever stop loving us? Even if he loves us right now, what about the future? Might there ever come a moment when he will turn away? Is there some future date, however distant, however remote, way out there in eternity future, when God will stop covering us with his grace? If that day is out there, then the gospel is not good news. Condemnation delayed is still condemnation. But eternally good news is really good news. How could it be otherwise? If God loves us now, but even as he says he loves us, he also is saying to us, if you ever fill in the blank, then God doesn't really love us right now. But the gospel is clear that God really does love us today because God really will love us tomorrow and then the day after that, then the day after that. We don't know what the future holds except for this. We will always be stepping into one more moment after another of the love of God forever. God is declaring to you today in this hour his everlasting and complete and all-sufficient love for you and all your need. So today is your moment, by God's grace for his glory, to get off the fence and go down on the side of believing in the love of God for you, not only right now, but also tomorrow and forever, and receive that assurance and move all your chips, all of them, over to the Romans 8 square and to stake your future on the total love of God for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ brought us from death to life. From the moment we repented of our sins, trusted in him and followed him. We thank you for that good news. That while we still battle with sin, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. We are sons of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And because we are so united with Christ, Lord, we thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. We are not condemned and we are not separated. Thank you for your everlasting love that you promised us. Help us rest in this love.